you know, I want you to pretend that you're pinching a piece of paper between your butt cheeks. And as soon as I said that, and you know, how many people hopefully listening to this are now trying to pinch something between their butt cheeks as they hear it. But all of a sudden you could see the light bulbs go off. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? I'm currently taking a break from packing up my house to do this intro and to do the editing because we are moving tomorrow. Moving is always such a chaotic experience, but in a lot of ways, I've learned to kind of embrace the chaos because I've also learned to love what a move brings. It's such a beautiful chance at a fresh start. First of all, you have to go through all of your stuff. So all of those drawers and cabinets and closets with things that you never touch, you have the opportunity to sort through. So the type A in me loves to do that and to kind of do a purge of everything that I know that we don't need. But also a change of environment is so powerful. Interestingly, I was talking to Elena, who I had on this podcast episode before we started recording. She told me about how when she moved, she had been working on trying to implement a meditation habit for a while, and it just wasn't sticking. But then she moved into a new condo, which had a different energy. It wasn't in the heart of downtown Toronto, and it feels just a little bit more... I think spacious and laid back. And from the time that she moved, she has not missed one day of meditating. Your environment has such a huge impact on your behavior and on your habits. And I think for me, the reason that I love moving so much is that it's a chance to reconstruct your environment, of course, but it's also a chance to reconstruct your habits. Because when you're in a certain place and you have certain things and certain rooms and certain ways, you fall into certain habits because of that. But you get to completely reconstruct it all when you go to a new spot. And that's so refreshing. Eric and I calculated. It's a little bit insane, but we've been in five different places in seven years And before that, we were also incredibly nomadic. So while that's a little bit frenetic, and in a lot of ways, I look forward to when we will have the chance to buy a home and lay roots a little bit more, I think it's also been hugely powerful. As we grow each year, we then move into a new place and construct our environment in a different way that supports that. And that's pretty freaking cool. So I'm excited for this move and I'm excited for the fresh start that I'm sure that it will bring. 
At the moment though, I am surrounded by boxes and stuff is everywhere. You'd think that after five moves, we would have been pros at this, but <laughs> I feel like it's the kind of thing where there's just always things that you don't think of and there will always be loose ends to tie up and the scramble will be very real when we move tomorrow. But overall, I'm feeling really good about it and I'm excited about it. More important, however, is the episode that I'm sharing with you all today. And I brought Elena Luciani back on the podcast because I knew this was a topic that she would be the best to talk about it with. So instead of doing kind of a boring solo episode, I had an awesome conversation on cueing, on the art of cueing with Elena. So I hope you all enjoyed this one. It was a very fun conversation with Elena. Hi, Elena. Welcome back to the How Do You Feel podcast. I am stoked to have you back and chat with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be back on, especially with the topic that we're tackling. So I'm pumped. I'm pumped to be here. Yeah, I felt like I didn't have much of a choice with the topic that we're going to be talking about because you are the expert on this topic. So today we're going to be talking about the art of cueing, and I call it the art very deliberately because as you know, it's definitely not a science. There's definitely a lot of flexibility in the way that like the cues that you can choose the timing of the cues, how you're delivering the cues. And so I definitely think that it's more of an art than a science. So lots of considerations to talk about when it comes to this idea of cueing. Let's start at the beginning, teaching an exercise. What is your approach and how do you avoid kind of over teaching from the start? Oh my goodness. It's really easy to want to use every tool in your toolbox right off the bat, especially when you're working with new movers. Uh, something that I discuss with um, some of the coaches and trainers that I work with is I actually love to teach anatomical position before introducing an exercise. And the reason for that is if you can help someone create tension from the ground up, in a standing position, then it's really easy to translate a lot of those cues into the movements that you then teach. And a lot of that is creating that tension, creating that kind of resistance in your body that is going to transfer into all those other foundational movements. So what I do is I think when you are working with a new mover, you kind of have to preface things by saying there might be a lot coming at you, right? Because if they are new, you can't necessarily start with one cue and just expect them to take it from there. Um, so I would kind of cue up different areas of the body. The way I approach things is I like to use analogies and I like to use a little bit of an explanation. So if someone is a more auditory learner, they can kind of take in that information. I'll demonstrate. I know I personally am a very visual person and a lot of people will pick up something from a visual demonstration. And then I'll have the individual go through the movement. Once I witness the movement and once I watch them, that's when I'll start to kind of file down the cues that I'm going to use with them. Mm -hmm. I use the approach of layering cues. So as opposed to being like, here's everything I got, give them 
a couple things to focus on. One, two, depending on where they're at and how they receive things, maybe three things to focus on. Um, oftentimes it really is only one thing. And then if they master that, then you layer on another cue. And that, that layering of cues could happen in one session. It could also happen from session to session. It could happen from week to week. I've had some people, we layer cues month to month. So it really depends on the individual that you're working with. And I think it's hard to make kind of generalizations because everyone learns in kind of a hybrid of different ways. So that's kind of my approach. But again, it could very well change as it is very context specific. Yeah, absolutely. That classic, it depends. Um, there are many things that you just touched on that I loved. First thing, don't underestimate the power of a demonstration. It could take us hundreds of words <laughs> and we could elaborately try to explain an exercise and explain exactly what's going where. If we just demonstrate it and allow the person to do their best to mimic, I think that it goes a very long way and takes away a lot of the need to explain things. I also love this idea of layering and giving people what they can handle at that time. So if we think about it, like, I know a lot of us like to believe that we're good multitaskers, but in reality, our brains can probably only focus on maybe one to three things and hold them really strongly in our mind. So if we think about that and we say, okay, I can only give this person one to three new cues at any given time, because that's all they're going to be able to focus on anyway. What are the most important things? So I think that it's powerful to have cues that sort of cover a lot of your bases. And I think this is also what you were getting at with the anatomical position. But if you have a cue of tension and they understand what that means from the ground all the way up, you've probably just cleaned up a lot of things that could potentially go wrong with one cue. And that's the ultimate goal, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, just as you said, it is always kind of dependent on the individual you're working with, but you're right in saying that visual demonstration, it doesn't matter what type of learner a person is. It's just, that's how our brains are wired when we see something. And as you said, being able to mimic it, I think that is the most powerful way to instruct an exercise or a movement and complement it with the other aspects. I think what's what's been really cool for me with the virtual side of things is I could definitely pick out who are kinesthetic learners because what will happen is I will, you know, there will be a demonstration, an explanation, but then you can see the people moving through the movement to get a sense of it. So without weight, just doing body weight, getting a feel for it. So I, I think it is really cool to also see that approach is sometimes people need to just kind of very in a very rough way, almost act it out or just kind of go through the movement and then set themselves up and actually kind of go through it under tension or with load or, or however you're, you're getting them to move. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because we all learn a little bit differently. And for some people, like I was a dancer my whole life. So if I watch someone do a movement, I don't really need you to say much to me. I'm very used to mimicking what I see. Others don't necessarily translate that so much and they need to feel it. As you're saying, if they're a kinesthetic learner 
or perhaps for some, they're auditory learners. And so it's actually, if you take their focus spotlight and put them with your words on the couple of things that they need to focus on, that might be the best for them. So it's also a process of getting to know your client and getting to know who's in front of you and what they respond to the best. Before we move on to um, talking a little bit more about sort of different types of cues and getting into the nitty gritty, I do want to just say this. One thing that I see and that I think I used to do a lot when I was teaching an exercise or first presenting an exercise, I think I used to start to troubleshoot before I even knew what I needed to troubleshoot, if that makes sense. So I would say, oh, totally. I, would, I would explain the exercise and then I would say, but don't do this and make sure that you're not doing this and don't let your shoulders round forward and X, Y, Z. Think about it. What the moment that you say, don't do something to someone, like if I said to you, don't think about a purple monkey, Elena, what are you thinking about immediately? I'm thinking about a purple monkey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think, I think when coaching and exercise and teaching, like, don't overdo it with all of the don't do this, like just wait until you see it and then you can troubleshoot what's actually going on. Is that a mistake that you made uh, when you were a new trainer as well? Absolutely. And I, I love that you bring that up because I actually think back to when I was taking the USA weightlifting sport performance coach level one. And I remember in the classroom session, we talked about cueing and we talked about the importance of the feedback that you give the athletes after they perform a movement and how you want it to be something constructive, something that they can improve on. And when we went into the uh, gym setting to do the workouts or to do the movements our ourselves, the instructor kept telling me, don't do that. No, you did that wrong. Don't do this. And I just remember thinking at that point, I mean, a very, I, I'd like to consider myself pretty body aware. I was already coaching. So I, I had worked with different people, different athletes, different demographics. And, but to put myself in the receiving end of things, I just thought, oh my goodness, this is so discouraging. And this is making me a lot less confident in my movement. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into the importance of feedback and what type of feedback we give. But I think that for me was a really good perspective to just remember what it's like to be on the receiving end of things like that. So yes, of course there, you know, when you work with people, there's going to be things that you want to clean up, but I always love using the feedback sandwich of that was that the energy in that rep was really, really great. Let's try to get those knees driving out along the line of those middle toes. But I want that same effort. That comes across a lot better than, no, your knees, no, that, that wasn't right. Don't do this. Make sure you're not doing this because it just gives them something else to think about. So instead of thinking of what they can focus on, they're almost more concentrated on what they're trying to avoid. Absolutely. I'm glad you went there. Let's, let's go there on the type of feedback that people get because you've heard us talk about this on DTS Habits Coach about how crucial it is for the client to feel successful. When you feel successful and you have those positive feelings walking away of, I nailed this piece, you're so much more motivated and excited to keep going. Like I'm sure when you got all of that negative feedback, you probably weren't that pumped to continue weightlifting from that point. You're probably like, well, this sucks. <laughs> so I think it's a crucial point. 
Yeah, I and I will say I am very awkward snatching a barbell over my head. I'm just I'm a little long, a little lanky. I was like fresh out of my basketball career. So I know it wasn't smooth. But at the same time, you know, and also being a coach, right, I was at this certification to be able to educate others on this. It was just, a, as I said, a very good reminder. And it and it's something that's really stuck with me. So of course, there are times that I've had athletes and clients ask, like, should I do this? And, you know, you're going to want to explain why they shouldn't do it or, or to not do that. But I think especially when you have them going through the movement, as I said, you want them focusing on something that they're working towards as opposed to, you know, what, what they should be avoiding. I think feedback is the most powerful tool to build someone up, um, whether it's giving someone props for doing something really well, and that's going to give them that confidence to then maybe take on another challenge. So when, you know, when I teach about cueing, when I educate about cueing, one of the first questions is always like, well, what do I cue first? Because sometimes you look at some movement patterns and there's several areas of opportunity, right? Like it's not just maybe one thing. And I always like to lean into what could potentially cause that individual harm. You're not focusing on, oh my gosh, this is dangerous. I don't want you doing this, but that's just where you're going to focus their attention. And you want to help them correct that part of the movement to ensure that as they're building that movement pattern, that they're getting into good habits um, without, again, overloading them with, oh my gosh, you have so much to work on. Let's work on these five things. It's like, okay, what is, what is going to give them potentially some problems? And you're not necessarily saying that to them. That's just in your own head being like, okay, I'm going to tackle this first because I, I want to be cognizant of, of the habits that they're building with it. Yeah. Being mindful of those areas of the body that are the most commonly injured when we think about like knees, low back, shoulders, how can we make sure that those things stay safe and knock those off first? As you say that, it also makes me think about um, perhaps the exercise that you've given them. If there are 10 things that you need to say about that exercise, perhaps you haven't built up the skills in that person to be able to do that exercise. And maybe that, that demand has exceeded their capacity so let's think about a different version of the exercise where they could be more successful. You could work on that neuromuscular pattern and you could give them two things to think about and they can be successful within that exercise. You know, so thinking about also just, are we giving them the proper thing if we feel like we have to queue up 10 different elements of a certain movement? I love this because we are so aligned in so many different ways because this actually came up in this current cohort of the queuing and programming clinic a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, someone had asked, well, what if, you know, there's five different things that they need to work on. And that's when you work on potentially regressing that movement to something that is a bit more accessible to them, right? There has to be some sort of entry into movement and everyone's going to start in different places. I've seen a lot of athletes that had never stepped foot in the gym, but are just naturally very good movers and they had very good mechanics. So it was really easy to kind of get them in maybe at a, a higher progression, whereas some others needed that extra step before moving into that. So that's a great, you can almost like go through a little checklist in your head. And if it gets to a point when you're like writing, you know, four or five things down, maybe it's time to, 
to revisit, you know, your kind of list of exercises and see if there's kind of one back that you can go. Yeah. Most effective thing, I think, if you can give someone one main thing to focus on, like if you can get to that point where it's like, I just need you to concentrate on this. And hopefully that this thing, that thing you've given them will clean up some other stuff too. So you've chosen that right linchpin, if you will. (laughs) But if you can give them that, I think that's probably the most effective way to coach because as I just said, like we often overcomplicate things. We can't think of all these things at once. Like let's just get the one thing and then we can feel successful at that before we kind of move on to the next. And I always say to young coaches and trainers that I try to phrase it in a positive way. When someone's over cueing, I just say, you're excited about everything you know, right? You're excited about educating this person and getting them to a place where they feel confident and they're empowered to perform a movement really, really well. So I think it's also something to, you know, when you, when you are a coach or you are a trainer, it's, it's easy to be hard on yourself to kind of reflect on a session saying, oh my goodness, I, I gave them 18 different cues. I totally messed up. And just reminding yourself, it's because you're really excited to educate that person. And that's when you just have to kind of take a step back and say, okay, I want them to be as excited as I am to move. So let's not overwhelm them right off the bat. Let's, you know, dial it down a little bit, but almost framing it as more of a positive thing. Um, than a negative, right? Because sometimes it it can be discouraging to the coach or trainer to say, oh my goodness, I don't know how to narrow it down or there's so much I want to tell them. So that's, that's, I think, a a learning piece for the educators as well. For sure. We have such a tendency to be so hard on ourselves. The same way the client might uh, really ruminate about a negative thing that you said, don't do this, or this wasn't as good as it could be. Like we do the same thing. We'll walk away from a session and think of, it's natural to think of all the things I wish I could have done better, but 100%, it always comes from a good place. It comes because as you've just said, we're excited to share with the client and it's just a skill. It's just, a, it's the skill of coaching. It's the skill of cueing. So it's just something that you have to deliberately practice to, to hone those skills. Absolutely. And I love that we're having this conversation because I feel like cueing is starting, or as you said, the art of cueing is starting to get traction as a skill to work on and continue to refine and progress. Because I know when I first was introduced to the world of strength and conditioning, a lot of it was very much what's the science saying, what is happening in the body. And Yes, those are all incredibly important things. I will never take anything away from that, but it's a it's really nice to see some growth and evolution in the industry to show that yeah, you could have all the science and you could read all the research and and you could know so much about the human body, but if you don't know how to communicate it, that's a huge gap because you can't do your job, right? We can't do our job if we can't take what we know and turn it into something digestible that our our client or athletes can take in. Yeah, exactly. It's only effective. Everything that we know is only effective if the client can actually implement it and change things 100%. Let's talk about cues for beginners or more beginning movers. Do there tend to be like types of cues that work better you find for people that are newer to movement? 
Absolutely. I would say that uh, external cues are much, much better for a newer mover. And an external cue is just relating the movement or the action to something in the environment, something that can help them connect the dots a little bit more because with a lot of new movers, they're probably not very body aware, right? They probably don't they don't know the muscles in the body They, you know, they don't know all the joints. They don't know what's happening. And, and that's okay. And I do think when it comes to long-term skill acquisition, you do need to start in incorporating more internal cues and that's for your more advanced users. But the analogy I like to use, my mind most definitely works in analogy. So I feel like I have one for everything, but it's helping someone cross a bridge. So the bridge is that external cue to get them to a place where you can start to use internal cues and things that are happening inside of their body and where they should feel the tension. Um, but you, you have to get them across that bridge. I think it's really, it can be intimidating for people when you start to use the names of muscles or the names of joints when, I mean, part of the reason the person is coming to you is because you have a knowledge base that they don't have. So it's not to say you don't want them to learn it, but you want to hold their hand a little bit or, or just help them cross that bridge. So I always like to say you kind of help them cross that bridge with the external cue. So again, using something in the environment and then working towards an internal cue when that's been mastered. That's a great way of looking at it. I love that. And I'm always noticing you're very creative with your external cues. They tend to be all over your social media. Can you just give us a couple of examples? So, so we really understand what is an external cue. So I think the most popular one would probably be pinching some form of money between your butt cheeks on any sort of glute bridge or squat, or, you know, when you want to get your hips throughout the top of um, you know, a deadlift or, or a movement with, with some sort of hip action. Um, I remember being in a position where I was coaching alongside another coach. We were working with a young group of athletes. So very new to movement. They also didn't care much about what was happening in their bodies. They just kind of wanted to be told what to do. And I remember the coach kept saying, you want to engage your glutes and you want to do this. And I'm looking at these kids and I'm just reading their body language and they're all like, what the heck? are you, what is that? And then I kind of stepped in and I said, you know, I want you to pretend that you're pinching a piece of paper between your butt cheeks. And as soon as I said that, and you know, how many people hopefully listening to this are now trying to pinch something between their butt cheeks as they hear it. But all of a sudden you could see the light bulbs go off. And then when they went and did their glute bridge, all of a sudden we were seeing that hip action that we wanted. And to be completely honest, the way I cue was something I used to be embarrassed of because I was surrounded by incredibly intelligent coaches and they would often coach the same way I read the textbook, right? So there was a lot of kind of connecting to muscle groups and things like that. And I understood that, but I'd also like to think I was pretty intuitive. And when I read certain body language or I was watching the movement be performed after it was queued up, I was like, there's there's a kind of a disconnect. So I, I started to think of these, you know, silly little cues and I started to see how effective they were. And so, you know, I would kind of get, you know, teased about it, but then every, but I'm like, you're all moving the way I want you to. So I'm happy that it's stuck in your head and, and now you remember that. So 
definitely pinching. Now I say money because it's like no one wants to drop money, right? So you're going to get a nice tight hold on that. Um, another one would be, you know, with the hinge, think about closing the top drawer of a dresser with your butt or, you know, try to reach your butt to the wall behind you. Um, for a squat, think about sitting back like you're sitting back into a chair. So just relating it to something that that individual will probably experience at another you know, point in their day or in their life. It's, and that's when we really get that transition from what they're doing in the weight room, what they're doing in the gym and how it actually translates into their real life, which is a beautiful thing. And, and I also think helps a lot with learning. Absolutely. We have this tendency to assume that what we know everyone else around us knows. It's a very normal assumption that we make as humans, but we start to make assumptions that everyone knows what glutes are or everyone knows what their lats are, but that's actually not true. <laughs> that's just, we just know it because we're surrounded by fitness all the time. So I love that you kind of got to that place of actually external cues are very powerful for beginners from experience because you saw, you mm -hmm. saw what was effective and I don't know, it just displays also a nice sort of like outward focus. Like sometimes when we're coaching, we can just get very worried about what we are saying and worried about how we are demoing and worried about how we look on the gym floor. But like, it's not about us. <laughs> it's about our clients. And so to have the ability to really look and to look for the feedback and say, is that working, whether it's a group or an individual, I think is, is crucial um, if you are going to be a coach. So tell me about now, you said that you want to help people cross the bridge. So let's say we have a more advanced mover. What are kind of more the types of cues that you're looking at for someone that's very body aware, has been practicing mindful movements, like has more of that awareness? Yeah, I think when it comes to the internal cues, it's getting them to focus a little bit more on maybe where they're feeling the tension or, you know, do they feel like their core is engaged? And with internal cues, I think that's a really great time to educate on things a little bit more. So I know I've worked with the same group of athletes for quite some time now, years. And so they're used to all my kind of external cues. But now we start to cue things up where I actually want them to feel the, the, the pull of their hamstring when they're going through um, an RDL, or maybe I do use muscle groups, or maybe I do explain, you know, the hinge with the ball and socket joint and things like that. So it's getting them more in tune with what's happening in their body, where they're feeling certain things, how they're creating that tension, like we talked about from the ground up. Um, so that's when, you know, I start to do a little bit more explaining. And it's not to say that every internal cue needs an explanation, but you also want to make sure that that is properly understood. So with the internal cues, I, I would focus more on maybe using specific muscle groups where they want to feel that tension, what's happening kind of inside their body, as opposed to what's happening in their environment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. There are some um, cues that I hear thrown around a lot from coaches and 100% that I used to say all the time too, so I'm not exonerated from this, but that I actually don't think are as effective as we think they are. And one example of that is neutral spine. <laughs> if you say neutral spine to someone, probably like they are doing a movement 
thinking that they are doing it with a neutral spine. Like no one purposely tries to like flex into their back as they do a deadlift or I don't know, whatever it might be, right? So, so they don't know that they don't have neutral spine, which also means that they probably don't know what the heck they're actually supposed to do to fix that. So they kind of just go neutral spine. Okay. And it doesn't make any difference. Right. But, but we say it all the time. We're like, make sure you have a neutral spine. Well, uh, like, what does that mean? So, um, I think there can, can you think of any other cues that you just hear like thrown around all the time where you're like, all right, there's probably something more effective that we could say. I think I totally agree with the neutral spine and with something like that, I try to bring the focus somewhere else. So oftentimes if someone's doing a squat in their head is staring at the ceiling, hold an egg between your chin and your chest. That's going to get that, that chin down slightly, tuck that chin. And that a lot of times is going to help create, correct the problem. So sometimes it's just a matter of getting their focus elsewhere. Cause you're right. It's like, well, what I thought, yeah, I, am I not in neutral, What you know, what is neutral? So I think another one, and this is one that I still use, but I'm very intentional with how I use it. And it's the belly button to spine. So I think when I first picked up that cue, I almost thought that would cue people up to properly brace their core when in fact it's not. I always use the sucker punch and I know it it can be kind of aggressive for some people, but what would you do if someone is about to punch you in the stomach, right? (laughs) You're going to, you're going to tighten up and and you're going to create some pressure in, in that kind of midsection, but I still use the belly button to spine more so um, with some prone core position. So if I do want someone to think about getting their back nice and flat to the mat, we'll think about pressing that belly button to the spine, right? Um, depending on what posture is like, that's something that could help, uh, if there's an anterior pelvic tilt. So if the butt is kind of flaring up and the hips are tipping down, it's like belly button to spine might bring them back into that neutral position. I sometimes use it on a push-up, So if I start to see the hip sag, getting them to focus on pulling their belly button into their spine will sometimes bring them back to that neutral position. So that's one that I know for sure I probably used incorrectly. And now I'm just more intentional with when I use it. So it's not to say that there's bad cues, but it's all about the intention. And also there are some fantastic cues that go very wrong with some people, right? Like there are some amazing cues that you're going to talk to, you're going to say it to someone and it's going to get them in the most rock solid position. And you're going to say it to some other people and you're going to think, oh no, what have I done? Right? So it's like, you also, that goes back to knowing who you're working with because a lot of times too, with the posture, I've heard ones like Superman, the chest, I've used it with some clients, phenomenal, like gets them in a great position, just kind of opens up their chest, drops their shoulders, brings those shoulders down and back. Some people I'm like, oh, I just did them a disservice by <laughs> using that because it was exaggerated. So <clears throat> I think that it just goes to show that any cue could be really, really good, but also could go the other way as well. So glad you brought that up because it's so individualized. And in my opinion, this is why we have to have many options for cues that we use, not just the, these are my three to five cues for this exercise because they don't work the same for everyone. And we have to be willing to say a cue and then watch, did it work? Did what, did it do what I hoped that it would do? And if not, if it didn't, it's probably not going to help 
to continue to say that cue. <laughs> like it didn't work. It always cracks me up when people are like, brace your core, brace your core, brace your, and they just <laughs> like, if your client didn't do it, the first one or two times that you said it, like saying it five more times, it's like probably not going to work. Right. So toss it. And what's the, what's the next thing that we go to? So we've got to have lots of options for what to draw from, I think. And that light bulb moment is the moment that you, that for me, that is the best feeling as a coach. When you say something and something is corrected or adjusted, or I often ask, did that feel different? Did that I, I noticed a change, but the most powerful thing is when they notice a change. So when I asked, did that feel different? Yeah, it did. I actually felt it more here or I felt it more there. That's, that's ultimate learning and understanding. One kind of common, let's call it mistake. I don't want to call it a mistake, whatever you want to call opportunity. it. Opportunity. We like the word opportunity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, a, a common opportunity that I, that I see is if you use a cue that's successful, it doesn't mean you have to change it the next time you queue up that position. So part of the reason why I explained going back to why I do anatomical position, because a lot of those cues they're going to hear when I teach another foundational movement. And I want there to be that bridge of understanding. I want there to be that, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I remember when she said corkscrew my feet, that's the same. I want to feel that same thing here. Whereas sometimes what I've seen is a cue has worked really well and it's almost like, great, that's worked. Okay. What's the next one. And then all of a sudden they, the person starts to do something different. And then it's like, no, wait, I want you to go back to what we were just doing. And then they're like, well, but you just said something different and they're going to process that differently. So sometimes you might sound like a broken record, but there's a reason for that. And I, I just followed announce it. Like for some of the individuals I work with, I'm going, I'm going to sound like a broken record again. I want you to think about driving those knees out along the line of the toes or, you know, whatever the cue is, but there should be repetition, right? Because that's when, that's when we're going to get that understanding. Even as I talk about have lots of options for cues, like having those core, that core language that you use as a coach for your universal cues that are really going to apply to most things. At DTS, the three that we use for all universal exercises, push your feet into the ground, kind of lights up your glutes, right? 3B, which is our cue for bracing your core, and then gentle roll of the shoulders. It just sets your shoulders into a neutral position. And so now there are those three cues that can be applied as you set up for any exercise and they're important and effective and the client understands and starts to draw the connections between, okay, now I always push my feet into the ground. I always get my 3B. I always roll my shoulders, right? So to have that, that common language and, and it can be whatever, what you say, screw your feet into the ground and suck your belly button in or whatever, right? Whatever your language is as a coach, I think it is important to start to have that language that makes, that's the trigger that makes the client go, oh yeah, like I know what that feels like. And that's building your toolbox. So I often talk about putting tools in your toolbox right? When you, and maybe this shouldn't be my analogy because I'm sure people that actually have toolboxes are probably like, you have no idea what it's like to build something. But, um, you know, if perhaps you get the wrong tool out that didn't work as well as you thought it would, 
Well, that's when you go back into your toolbox and you try to find another tool that would work. So that that's kind of the analogy I like to use with, with coaches and trainers is, you know, you build your toolbox by, you know, taking, taking courses, learning from other coaches, you know, going to classes, listening to the way, you know, people cue things up and you're going to pick up on things that you're like, Oh, I love that. And you're right. I definitely have a group of kind of staple cues that I use. And for anyone that follows me on social media, that sees that, you know, watch my cueing videos each and every morning, you're going to see probably two or three of the same cues probably every day. And, and that's very intentional, right? It's that repetition, but that's, what's in my toolbox. And every once in a while, maybe I've tried a cue, you know, so many times and it doesn't work. Well, maybe I just take that out of my toolbox and make space for, for another tool to come in. So that's the way I, I kind of like to think about it. And, you know, by no means does the toolbox have to be overflowing, right? It, it's got to have the basics. It's got to have the simple things. And, and you just do really, really well with, with those basics. Yeah. I love that analogy. Awesome. Elena, before we wrap up, I kind of want to know what are your maybe top two or three quick tips for trainers in regards to queuing? Less is more. And that's, that really just ties into everything that we talked about early on. Mm -hmm. Stay true to yourself. And I say that because as I mentioned, when I was a younger coach, I was often embarrassed about the way that I coach my language of coaching, because I, I thought it didn't sound smart enough. And when I started to take ownership of my strengths, I started to see the impact in much greater ways. So yes, pick up on things from people you admire, but try them out for yourself and stay true to yourself. If you're saying something that doesn't make any sense to you, well, what if your client or athlete says, can you explain that for me in depth? And then you're put on the spot and you're not sure how to explain it. So I think it's really important to also have that foundational knowledge and, and that understanding of, of what you use. So less is more, stay true to yourself and remember you're working with humans. So I, I often talk about the human first approach and that oftentimes dictates how I coach and how I cue. If someone's having a crappy day, I'm probably not going to go in depth with all these analogies of explaining a new movement. Maybe they just want to hear what they're used to. They, they want to focus on, they have other things on their mind that they, that they're focused on. Mm -hmm. So human first, always remember that. I think those translate far beyond just queuing. <laughs> like, I think you just nailed it on some of the kind of the top concepts to think about if you call yourself a coach in any, in any way, shape or form. So I absolutely love those. Those are awesome. Let's talk a little bit about your clinic. You have a queuing and programming clinic that you run that you've now taken virtual. So do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about it? Yeah. So this is my way of helping fill a gap and fill a void in continuing education. So I was noticing that there was some really incredible resources and courses and clinics on some really, you know, niche information. Um, so obviously when you, when you go, you know, I'm certified through the NSCA. So very extensive textbook covers a lot. Um, and then all the research kind of continues to branch off of that. But I was noticing that a lot of the clinics and things that were accessible to me after I got that certification were very specific about very specific research. 
And I'm like, why is there not something that's kind of, let's just refine the basics. Let's, let's get really, really good at teaching the basics because there's a lot of things out there that you might never use as a coach, right? It's great information to know and to have, you know, in the back of your head, but there's nothing wrong with going through the basics and just getting really good at them. And so I started to do it actually out of what I saw was a need. There were young coaches that I was mentoring and they were saying, you know, I learned this in my certification, but now what? So programming was a big piece and the queuing and communication part was also a big piece. And those, you know, I'm finally kind of taking ownership. Those are two of my strengths. So I thought, how can I just make this a little bit more approachable, a little bit more applicable? Because I know when I left my certification, I felt as if I was expected to just be really good at everything at that point when there was nothing in between to just allow me to try some things, discuss some things, review some things, and then take it into the real world. So my biggest mission with this is to give other coaches and trainers tools to immediately put in their toolbox so they can finish a session of the clinic and be able to apply something into their their next one-on-one session. And so it's all about kind of that application and just refining the basics, getting really, really good at the basics, knowing that there's so much out there for some of those more niche topics. You're so right. It's such a gap. The only reason that I learned how to program and how to cue was from working on a team of trainers that taught me how to do that. There was no formal clinic or education that I knew of at the time when I was a new trainer to learn those types of things. And that's exactly what we do day in and day out, you know, like that's the most important piece almost of, of the how of coaching. So I think it's an awesome thing that you're educating trainers on that. And thank you very much for sharing all of your knowledge on these topics or not, not even close to all of your knowledge (laughs) of your knowledge on these topics on the show today. We really appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Happy to. Honestly, when you sent me the kind of list of potential topics, I was like, these are all the things I love talking about so much. I'm beaming right now because it just, it does bring me so much joy to discuss this. And I'm happy that the industry is moving in a direction where this is, you know, these are the types of skills that, that are important to being a coach. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly why I knew that you were the perfect person to come on to talk about it. So it worked out well. Um, If people want to learn more from you, want to follow you on social, what are the best ways to find you? My website, www.trainingtoexcel.com, the number two in the letters XL. And that's the same way that you could find me on Instagram. Those are probably the places I hang out the most. So um, you can always find me on, uh, on Instagram, my website, my emails attached, everything is under training to Excel. So pretty easy to find. Love it. Straightforward and simple. And I'll link it all up in the show notes as well. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Elena. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to how do you feel? If you're enjoying what you're hearing, Please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Rate and review the podcast. Those ratings and reviews really do go a long way. I appreciate them all so much. Better yet, share the podcast with a friend or family member that you think would benefit from the messages that we talk about on How Do You Feel? All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. I hope everyone has a great week. 
And as always, remember, get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.